but I'm inevitably like going back to my altar before I like do any workday stuff and praying. And, and, you know, it's also like that when I'm washing the dishes, I'm communing with water. Like I, you know, there's so many different ways that it happens. And I'm sort of, I have this orientation to see the, the profundity on a kind of moment to moment basis. So yeah. there's a sense that I have, like on the inside, I'm listening. I'm, I've kind of got an always like a metaphor would be that I'm always listening for the divine song in reality. And so that I'm always hearing it. Welcome to Wayward Bodies, a show about our bodies and the messy places that they meet the world. I'm your host, Ellie Bauer-Johnston. Each episode, we'll be exploring embodiment, body liberation, creativity, healing, and how we can start to show up as our whole selves. Johnston. I am an embodiment guide, a breath and rest teacher, a writer and a body witch, and I am your host on this fun podcast. I'm very glad you're here with me. So today I am offering you a conversation that I got to have with Leila Sadegi. We spoke about the divine feminine. We spoke about her journey from the art world to mysticism and how we can start to make our own lives the temple in which we connect with the divine. Layla is a practical mystic and a channel for beautiful healing energies, and she's skilled at creating powerful healing spaces wherever her voice is heard. Known for her talent in bringing the depth of esoteric spiritual traditions to salient and accessible focus, she is a master ritualist, and a caller of community centered in collective care and spiritual awakening. Layla is dedicated to dissolving systemic oppression as a spiritual practice, and she is a devotee of the Divine Mother in all their forms. She's also a pilgrimage enthusiast for whom walking on sacred ground brings ecstatic satisfaction. Based in the UK, Layla leads ritual healing events, sacred pilgrimages, immersions in spiritual practices, yoga teacher training, and utterly magical retreats online and around the globe. I loved the places that we wandered in this conversation, and that language seems fitting since we talked about the, the alienia nature of spiritual awakening and the deep devotion we need to be able to trust that spiraling path. Along the way, we stopped to look at going inwards to find the medicine that will save you, uh, what pilgrimage and ritual practices look like in day-to-day -day life and how we can start to dismantle oppression within our spiritual communities and our own spiritual practices. Before we dive into this conversation, I just need to let you know a couple of things, actually just one thing this week, um, is that I am taking applications for one-to-one -one work starting in the autumn because we're at that point of the year already. And that's for both the six-month deep dive, Wayfinder, and for the single-serve 90-minute sessions, which are called touchstone sessions. Uh, so if you are looking to come back to yourself in any way, if you're looking to deepen into your own embodiment practices or your own spiritual practices, reconnect with your breath and the power that it has to regulate your nervous system or 
find ways to come into a more restful approach to life, then these are for you. Just head into the show notes and there'll be a link for you to come and book a place or book a conversation with me and we can go from there. Okay, time to listen to Layla and her magic unfold. Uh, I can't wait for you to hear this conversation. Here we go. Layla, it is so nice to be here with you. Thank you for joining me. Um, yeah, I mean... Thank you so much for having me. It's, it's an honour. Honestly, such a pleasure. So I have been lucky enough to be joining you for some of your work uh, on Abundance this week which I imagine we'll probably wander into as we as we talk. But for everyone who doesn't sort of know your work and what you do and like, you know, they've obviously heard the intro, but um, is there, do you want to give us a bit of an idea of like how you ended up here? Like a little bit of the winding story, however much you want to tell about how you started here, end up here? <laughs> how I ended up because it's been a very winding path I would say it's not been a straightforward one it's been a linear and uh very magical um yeah like I would say just to say generally about my path my feeling about it is one of immense gratitude but it did not start in a friendly place I mean it started with I mean I would just say like the word is desperation I was really, you know, very desperate to be successful in my chosen career path. I was working in the art world. I was in my early 20s. I was, I had really kind of, you know, traveled leaps and bounds to, to do what I wanted to do, to work with artists, to be a curator, to work in galleries, to do all this kind of stuff. And I had been a suburban teenager in America um, with sort of no connections really to the art world or artists or any of these sorts of things, but a real love of creative work. Mm. And I had, I had sort of made this great leap when I was 19 to move to England, to work in the art world. And I, I'd had this amazing thing. I took this big chance and, and I sort of, it paid in kind of immense dividends because I arrived in London just as the young British artist thing was all kicking off. And right. I, you know, it was still very like small and very kind of everybody knew everybody in the art world, but it was, there was real like bright energy, like something was happening, like something was about to happen. And um, I fell in love with this gallerist and it was just this very dramatic and amazing experience. And um, a few years into it, he had passed away and very suddenly and lots of wow. sort of changes had taken place. And I got super kind of desperate and kind of locked down in my career thing. And I, I think what I now understand as an adult that I didn't understand then was like, this is not for me. Like what I was trying to do was there was like, it was like a, my life was kind of going, don't, not, don't do this or not this way. And of course I was like amply self-sabotaging in my unconscious self-loathing and my sense of utter, you know, imposterness. And, you know, I really you know, was just, yeah, a big, big, big mess really in my early twenties. And I had a morning when I was in living in Berlin in a, like a squat didn't have electricity. I was like, was like the old apartment of this gallerist I was working for. So there was all this art in the house, but there was no electricity. I was like living by candlelight. Thank goodness there was a stove that worked and still had the gas. Hooked well, up to it. it was really, but it was in Mitte. So, you know, it was like sort of cool or something. Anyway, I, um, I ended up, uh, 
waking up one morning and realizing that the voice in my head wasn't my, me and I didn't know who, who I was and I didn't even know what that meant, but I knew that I had to wake up spiritually and what does that mean? And so I was really compelled. And I, so this, this kind of path opened up before me and I, but it didn't look good. You know, I kind of wanted to just solve, you know, answer the questions, get the awakening and then like move on with my life. Like I had this concept that there was, I didn't understand that I was being invited into a completely different way of understanding myself in the world and, and really a whole, well, I was being, you know, invited through my innermost heart into spiritual gnosis, like G N O I S S I S, you know, spiritual Gnosticism was calling me and I, I just didn't understand. So that was how it began. Just casual, no big deal. Yeah, very <laughs> strong medicine. And even in the early days, like my first tried to meditate, I had this very powerful, like release experience, which also, you know, there was this pre-internet, this is it's the nineties. So, I mean, it wasn't pre-internet, it was dial-up internet. And I would go to the library, the national art library in Berlin. And like, you know, it would take like 20 minutes for a page to load. Um, and not everything was on the internet. Mm. Yeah. You can't be like, what does the spiritual awakening mean? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I, I mean, I don't remember Google. Like there was no, like, I don't, there was no Google, like, or maybe it was, but I, I didn't know about it. You know, yeah, you're like asking Jeeves or whatever it was like, yeah, Google. Yeah, absolutely. So yeah. it was, um, and maybe even pre Jeeves. I mean, I don't even know it was 1998, whatever you were doing then. And it was complicated for me. And because I, you know, had all this sort of ambition and, and a lot of this, you know, but I, I didn't understand that that was all a lot of conditioning. Hmm. And I, I didn't really kind of know myself. Yeah. And like the, it's interesting, the practicality of it, right? Like wanting, wanting the, the sort of like, okay, but what does that really look like? And I think that's so easy to, you know, to be standing in the place that you know, to be standing in, in you know, the conditioning of the world, which is deeply practical, deeply kind of like logical and, you know, driven by, by those kind of forces and to be like, okay, but, but can you explain the mystical to me so I can understand it before I leap? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, that would have been good. I mean, I had no one to go. I literally had, no, I mean, I remember asking, I had this crush on this artist. This, he was an American artist who was on a, a residency, um, in one of the kind of galleries in Berlin. And I remember, you know, meeting up with him and, and asking him like really naively. And like, I'd just been having these like kind of desperate experiences trying to understand what I was called to do. I didn't understand that I was receiving a profound calling. Like I just was confused. And I said, do you believe in God? I mean, the level of making fun of me was, you know, it was just like, I might as, I mean, in those days, you know, it was that sort of, you know, nobody who was considered, well, no one who would consider themselves intelligent would speak about God or the divine that, you know, that was like for those people over there, you know, it was, the understanding was that you were either like, you know, an intelligent kind of secularist, or you were a, a fool. Mm. Yeah, yeah, you were yeah. like, you know, a real soft minded kind of person. And, you know, I just never, and the irony was I had family who were committed, you know, Buddhist meditators. Like my cousin by marriage was a lay monk in Thich Nhat Hanh's order. Like I did have points of access to other ways and I, I sort of respected it, but I, I couldn't, you know, it was just very confusing. I didn't understand sort of what God had to do with my awakening or like, and then I was like, well, Buddhism is safe. I mean, that's how I started with Buddhism is because it was safe. Mm. 
yeah like in in the 90s it was it was the safe way to kind of like be spiritual right like and not be completely mocked absolutely it was like remotely culturally acceptable yeah but only just and yeah you're like that's still a bit weird um so like okay little baby Layla there in Berlin having this like massive spiritual awakening and not having anywhere to go or like any any direction to know what to do with it like where did where did it unfold from there well, it starts, so I was looking, I call it my, the other thing is that then, of course, this is also like, I have the cousin who's a lay monk. I also had an intimate friend who had become a devotee of a guru mm. um, in New York City. So her dad, so I had spiritual influences. Her father had been a committed spiritual practitioner. And I, so it was on my map of things to do. And I kind of thought once I have worldly success, then I'll get into that. That was my sort of concept, you know? So I, when I had my awakening, I called her and in New York, she was living in New York in the village. And, and I called her and I, I said, I think I need to wake up. And of course she was like, and then and she had a hard time not mocking me because I'd been the sort of, you know, a whole secular friend who just sort of like rolled her eyes when she was praying, you know? And, um, but she said, you have to meditate. So I got really quickly like, okay, well, if you want to wake up spiritually, meditation is the key. Like that was the first thing that came to me. So um, I did try meditating on my own and that's a whole story, but I ended up looking for a group to meditate with. And I was really looking for a Tibetan Buddhist group or looking for, you know, I tried to go, I mean, it was the summer in Berlin. And of course, it's still the case that all of Europe really shuts down in the, you know, by the time you get to sort of mid-July, it's mm -hmm. like, you know, Europe is closed. But in those days, I mean, it was really close. I mean, it was, you know, people did not answer the phone, you know. So I was trying to get an answer from the phone at Plum Village in, you know, which is Thich Nhat Hanh's um, a monastery in France. And I would just anything that was like remotely recognizable and I couldn't find any Tibetan Buddhists. And I was also looking for something like right now, because the thing I was on fire, mm. I was on a, I was in a state of mind. I was just like an utter desperation. Like I, I needed something to calm my mind and my heart. Like I was kind of borderline hysterical, like really right on the line at that time, like really, you know, not well. Mm. And so I did finally find a meditation, a Buddhist meditation group. And that's actually how I started properly doing asanas, like yoga asanas, because they, when I sat to meditate, I kind of freaked out <laughs> and um, thought that meditation, I, I mean, I thought you get instruction for meditation and you sit down and everything's fine. Like suddenly it's like the, it's like you've just switched the flip. I didn't understand what meditation was at all. I just thought this is the thing I need to do. And I will like, you know, it's kind of like taking a pill, like I'll do it and I will wake up. Like that was my level of understanding at that point. So then I tried to, to, <laughs> I tried to meditate and I just, afterwards I was just in floods of tears. I mean, I kind of was so, you know, so vulnerable and, and, you know, everybody looks so calm and happy. And of course I know now that's what looks like on the outside. What's going on <laughs> on the inside is, is, you know, the, 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 the swords of Mara, you know, and the <laughs> arrows, you know? Um, but I, I didn't understand that then it took me a while to get into, you know, well, not that long within a few months I was reading and starting to understand what my experience was a little bit, but anyway, the, the meditation teacher said, you know, we have a yoga class before people finally do the asanas, then they sit and meditate. And it's a little better. And he was right. It's a, it was a just barely manageable. Scrape the edge off just a little yeah. bit. Yeah. 
So all kinds of things happened. I ended up coming back to London from Berlin and going to the Shambhala Center in the summer break. And they were open. And I learned how to meditate from a gentleman who had been a student of Trungpa Rinpoche's. Mm, cool. So that I, I'm sure he's not, bless, bless him, you know, I'm sure he's not on this planet anymore. He was a very old man then. Mm. And this is, yeah, more than 20 years ago. And he, um, he gave me meditation instructions. And I, because I felt really safe because I'd read the Tibetan art of living and dying. So that was the Sogyal Rinpoche text and thought, okay, Tibetan Buddhism is my, that's what I'm going to do. You know, I kind of narrowed in on that. So I felt like the instructions, the, the Buddhist group in, in Berlin hadn't appealed to me as much. Like there was something, there's something not quite right about it. It was, um, there was a, a kind of sort of white British dude at the helm of that whole organization. And I, I just kind of intuitively, I think I was really interested in, you know, if I was going to, at that time, I thought, well, if I'm going to study Tibetan Buddhism, I want to be with Tibetan practitioner. You know, I didn't, and now I kind of see like, it's sort of like, yeah, that's, that sounds right. You know, like I was sort of had a good instinct there, but um, so I started a daily meditation practice and I was doing that. And then a friend of mine, I was sort of still very unhappy in Berlin and in the art world and still not able to understand that level of like my career stuff, you know? And a friend of mine was like, and a lot of people had said to me, you should just go traveling. You're young. Like I was one of those people. I was like so desperate to get my career going, you know, and I was so committed to it. And, and now I see that it was in part, you know, my, all my, my dad issues, you know, my father is wounding and my, um, my relationship to this great love who died very suddenly and trying, you know, I realized now it was an attempt to memorialize him. And I, I didn't understand what I was trying to do. And also, I think it was just like my interest in being in a temple space, because, you know, if we look around at, you know, what, what the potential temple spaces are, like, if you go around London, even now, you know, 20 odd years later, a gallery is going to feel more like a temple than a lot of other spaces. Mm, for sure. You know, it's, there's a level of quiet, there's a level of, of quiet contemplation. There's a, you know, all these reverence. Yeah. Certainly reverence. Obviously a lot of what's being worshiped is, um, monetary about like, you know, monetary value and, and, and sort of fashion, but like, but still, you know, there's, there's, there's a lot there. And I think that I was always drawn to that. Now I look back and I see, oh, you see, you were trying to, trying to create this. And I just didn't, I didn't have any kind of context for it. I didn't know what I was trying to do anyway. So I ended up going to India and, you know, and then everybody was warning me that, that I was going to get mixed up in a cult. And I was like, I don't know what they thought. I was like, I'm on a spiritual quest. They were like, you have to be careful. I mean, everybody and their brother was telling me this, which I think now is just kind of, I don't know, you know racist and just really, you know, not very, just not like, not very knowledgeable. Mm. But anyway, I ended up just doing my daily meditation practice that I'd already learned and doing that every day and, and being in this place where, you know, the relationship to the divine and spirituality was very different from the one that I had grown up with. And then I ended up going to the Omega Institute and studying with Pema Chodron, who also had been like my meditation teacher had been a student of Chagyong Trungpa Rinpoche's and I'd started reading her books and they were really impactful for me. You know, they're very practical and really translating, you know, some of the, the sort of wisdom of the Tibetan Buddhist path at that kind of, you know, accessible level 
and, and it was all around like your emotions and your experience and all that stuff that I think I really needed to hear at that time. Yeah. And yeah, then I ended up living at the Omega Institute, which was also very transformative. Hmm. Yes, you did. So lots of things. I mean, you can see like every year was like a new level and I was determined to get into my body. So I moved to New York and was doing all this yogasana and do going to dance class. And because I thought, well, I can't, I just, can't. when I look back, I was like, it was all there, you know, even in the earliest days, I was like, I wanted to be in a temple space. I wanted, you know, there's the gallery. Like I wanted to be in places of contemplation and reverence, like all of those practices that I do. I wanted to be in community and you know, living in community. I was, that's the Omega. We the staff our community for those, those seasons that they come in together. And I wanted to be exposed to lots of different ideas about spirit and mm-hmm. And I also um, knew that I couldn't leave my body out of it. Like, I, I mean, you know, it's not like it was, everybody was screaming it. Somehow that was information that I got in those early years. Like, don't leave your body out of it. And, and also even magical practice that first summer at Omega, my best friend from high school suddenly had started practicing witchcraft. Mm. And so then she exposed me to a book that I still kind of read annually and still, you, you know, refer to and, you know, all these years later. And I was going then to sister circles and sister circles on, on moon days and on, you know, these sorts of things. There was a whole sister circle group at Omega, the Omega Institute. I'd never been to anything like that, but then I was doing group ritual practice and doing ritual theater. So all of the, all of like, if I look at those early years, like everything that's kind of come into kind of a ripeness in my career now was all, all the groundwork was all laid in those early years. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I love you know that that sense of you know especially speaking from young Layla who was like I want to know exactly how the path is laid out and like how often how how so often all of the pieces are always there we just we can't see the wood for the trees we can't see them because we haven't got the the space the perspective we haven't like peeled off enough layers of like conditioning and, and muck to be able to see the gems that we already have we think that it's out beyond us but you know we think uh, you need to go out into the world and find the thing that is going to save you but like so often all of the things that are going to be deeply transformative to you are are already there in some way yeah Mm. I mean I think the mark you know the mark of a good path is that it gives it it allows you and this is the thing I kind of feel nowadays like I don't want to say it's like what's missing but like I I often feel like there's so much now there's this astonishing glut of sort of spiritual information Mm. at your finger at anyone's fingertips. You know, you kind of can't, you can't throw a rock without hitting a a sort of somebody who calls himself a spiritual teacher nowadays, or is going to introduce you to some kind of magic or something. And um, how wonderful, I think, you know, I mean, I think it's absolutely wonderful. And, you know, there's still this, you know, with this sort of interface with capitalism and, and with oppression, there's still a way that that, tendency to outsource is still then operative like okay you have to go to this person to to pay them money and do the thing you know or oh this will be the thing and it'll fix all your things and you know I feel like there's a way that you know the kind of primary fun I'm very interested in my own path as as a facilitator in both calling communities for for self and mutual recognition and collective recognition but also in supporting people and in really having their like really doing deep insourcing Mm. and you know the kind you know just like we come together because it's really important to be in community you know like you know but 
fundamentally, you know, it's kind of like, we're going to see the reflection in that space. And we also like the one's own daily practices and one's own commitment to, to insight. I mean, I think that's what the word is. Mm. is yeah. Really yeah. And I, I think, you know, as you said, like within a world where there are a million options and a million choices and a million different paths kind of laid out in front of you from, from every person telling you that they can help fix the problems that you have. It, it can be all the, like all the easier, like so much easier to be like, oh, this thing didn't give me an instant result. Okay. I'm going to try the next thing instead of like the, the spiraling down, the deepening down, the trusting yeah. of the path that is, that is, you know, the thing that will actually for the most part, that that is the thing that does the working is like the the commitment and the trusting and the the continual repeating and devotion. Yeah. Hmm. And also like, you know, knowing that like, you know, I don't want to say knowing, but orienting towards like the decimation of your limited self-concept and your limited identity. I mean, I think that's also really fundamental because the insight is not, a, it's like, if you, if your self-concept is too narrow, the, the, the breadth of the insight that is kind of in a way, always knocking at your door is unavailable, mm. <laughs> you know, or the, let's say like the power, you know, it's like, you've got this big, huge, massive power that's sort of, you know, attempting to reflect you back at you. And then, you know, but you're, you know, you, you've, you don't know how to see it. Yeah. You're like, but, but I need, to, you know, to have my, the right job or, you know, whatever, like, you know, there, I really want that handbag or, you know, it's like the handbag's great. And we want the handbag. Like I love handbags, you know, all things, <laughs> but like, there's a way that, that there's something like the level of the magnificence and the, the, the profundity of the invitation to trust is so much bigger than most people can deal with. And also like, you know, that's it, you know, the limited self identity identity is exactly that it'll tell you that you are small and it'll tell you that it's outside of you. That's mm. it's constant refrain mm. in the tantric, uh, yoga. They call it the Anava Mala and the Anava Mala. They you know, it's persistent as heck, you know, it's like really persistent. It'll come back up again and again. Yeah. It's not just like check. Great. Done with that one. Yeah, no. And, and, but, and then it's like, but then becoming truly truly committed, like really deeply, profoundly, like I just determined to pierce the veil of that delusion or to completely disregard that information. I mean, both will work, you know, mm. both are great. That's, you know, that I feel like helping people to hung, hunger for that more than they, more than they, they try and make themselves comfortable. That's, that's a real shift for people. Hmm. You know, because, and also there's a lot of comfort. Like you can sort of just, you know, your life just like with a couple minor changes, like there's a lot of comfort. Then it's like, okay, well, yeah, but swiftly moving on, that register of comfort still might not be the dimension of, of self-reflection that is really going to show you what you're capable of and really show you what you are. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I suppose that kind of circles us towards where you are now, right? We've, we've wandered along your path. Um, oh, yeah. and oh, so many other things happened. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, yeah, like yeah. a whole life, a whole lifetime happens. Yeah, um, exactly. And, you know, now you, you spend you, in your work, you speak a lot about uh, devotion to the divine mother and, and the divine feminine. And it feels as though you've already kind of, pointed towards what that actually means 
Um, but maybe it would be useful to give a few more words towards what what do you talk about when you're talking about the divine mother? Yeah, I mean, I'm talking about every, every I'm talking about you, <laughs> I'm talking about everything. Um, and I'm also talking about the sense that there is a capacity to experience the source of reality mm. and that there is that that re- reality is layered and it is um uh multivalent and the way that that for like a devotee maybe for me as a devotee the invitation is to become so intimate with every single one of their layers because to me the divine the divine mother is a she they to become fascinated and increasingly delighted by the way they unfold reality and show the different dimensions of reality at different moments in time and how to, and this is really the priestess path, how to inhabit all of these different dimensions of reality fully and at the same time, like to be not just like, like pat, like crossing through the veils, but actually operating in, in all of these different spheres all at the same time and freely and with joy freely and with joy in in all of the veils of existence yeah. um yeah i mean how how does that relationship unfold in your life in your in your work like you know when when you speak of being a practical mystic like on the practical side how how does that look for you you know it's so like every day for me i realize that the way i i have to say that i realize that that it is probably true that the way that i live is very very free at this point like compared to where i was coming from mm. um but i take it a lot for granted so i often need a, somebody to like say like oh yeah that's not normal <laughs> that you do that you do all the time i mean i can say like very simply on a kind of practical level like it is trust in the divine that is centered in my life. And I want to say like a delight and a sense of like constant encouragement from life itself. When I talk about the divine, I'm talking about life itself. I'm talking about a vision of life that, that goes way beyond the mere transactional. And, and I would say the mere material into any different like way, like all the different kind of languages that one might use to describe life. Mm. So a sense of its vastness and also a sense of its like astonishing scale all the way down to the minutiae and a sense of its um, power that is limitless and also then expresses itself in me as me as limited power and limited agency in my kind of human beingness. Um, It's also about, you know, awakening my heart and awakening kind of really the depths of compassion. So as on a kind of day-to-day basis, it's really like I start my day at my altar with my practices and I'm, uh, and even when I, I actually don't absolutely start my day these days, I start my day with like a kind of being with a warm drink and in my bed and looking at the sea and kind of attuning to the energetics of the day. Oftentimes I'll start with like a whole energy healing. I've got like, I'm working on different energy projects all the time. So I've sort of got these sort of esoteric things that I'm doing at the same time. I might be like, Oh, I'll answer this email or I'm going to read this, you know, this, the news thing that I read, I have a particular news thing I like to read every day. And, and then I, I, you know, but I'm inevitably like going back to my altar before I like do any workday stuff and, Mm -hmm. and, and praying and, and, you know, it's also like that when I'm washing the dishes, 
on communing with water. Like I, you know, there's so many different ways that it happens. And I'm sort of, I have this orientation to see the, the profundity on a kind of dated moment to moment basis. So yeah. there's a sense that I have, like on the inside, I'm listening. I'm, I've kind of got an always like a metaphor would be that I'm always listening for the divine song in reality. And so that I'm always hearing it. Mm. So, okay. I would say maybe the fundamental shift or the big, the big shift that, that I would say would be the one that I would like to support people in finding for themselves is the one where it doesn't like we have all like emotional ups. We're no longer, I'm no longer like really like leaned way into my mood because the divine is louder than my mood. Mm. And I don't no longer like I, I no longer see the divine as this thing that's going to like fix my mood or make me feel better. It's like I can feel any I can have any number of levels of energy. I can have, and I, you know, it. let's put it this way, like the biggest the big learning experiences now are when that sense and it happens so rarely now when that sense of like just the song of life like diminishes, like when it really gets gets super quiet and I've got to really dig, you know, like that's those are like the real intense learnings. Yeah. So yeah, mostly for me, it's, it's like that. And I do all, I'm constantly doing these little prayers and blessings all the time. I think of what I'm doing as a blessing. I don't think of it as like, I don't know, a phone call to so-and-so, you know, and like, there's a kind of sense of like wakefulness to it. Yeah. yeah which I didn't used to have. I didn't used to have any of that. You know, it used to be just like, I want, I want to press the code into life that'll make <laughs> life extract the experience I want to have. And it was just that now I'm like, it's hard, you know, there's, it's really popular to like, just do manifestation. I'm going to feel like this. And I want to feel like that. But like, I'm like, well, the divine is like the, doesn't the thing about the divine is that there's no opposite. That's it's a non-oppositional reality. So it's like, now we're not no longer dealing with, I feel like this. Now I want to feel the opposite way, or I want to feel, I, I'm trying to spin around in this sort of like oppositional world and find a place in the, in that pattern that, that works for me. It's like, I could be anywhere in that pattern and the divine is, is still audible, visible, sensible, palpable. It's mm. still, and I talk about the divine, I'm talking about life itself. Yeah. And it's, it's sound, it's the sense of like your life becoming the temple rather than like the temple being, you know, the place outside of you again. Mm. Um, yeah. And like how, how every moment is an opportunity to open to receive, to be present, to to be in relationship with life, aliveness, whatever it is you want to call it, you know, prana, God, spark, whatever, the universe, like everybody has has different names for it. But yeah, I think that um, that sense of conditionality can, you know, the I want this and you will give me this thing so that I can be okay, can be so sticky and tricky to unravel from yeah i mean you know this is like you really that's that requires some attention i mean it. it still requires my attention because like conditioning still asserts itself like it's a continual asserting of the conditioning and then i'm just sort of like you know melting it i'm just sort of doing the things that that are an attempt to melt it and to see but there's also this way that that you know in the devotion in the kind of like life as an active devotion, 
movement of my day-to-day and moment-to-moment experience, there's a way that like, if I like, you know, like seek and I shall find is like very, you shall find is very, like a very accelerated thing. And that is also very different from what my experience before it felt like I would like ask and want, and it would just be like tumbleweeds or something like this. And now, you know, it's like, if I really am like, ask like, okay, you know, mother show me. And then it's like, like, I'll just, it'll just, it's like literally like gemstones kind of pouring from every direction. And, you know, it's like always a divine surprise, like living the divine surprise really is a surprise. So then there's like, whoa, that's next. And sometimes that's such a big energy. Wow. (laughs) Fast, you know? Yeah. Like, oh, that showed up in a way that I was really not expecting it to show up. And it's entirely different to what I expected, but Yeah. yeah. And so with, you know, with, uh, the dailiness of your communing you know you also have these moments of pilgrimage and these moments of ritual which which i imagine are much more intentional focus on that devotion i'd love to hear i mean you know you talk about uh, walking on sacred ground like that which really resonates very strongly for me like can you tell me about what does a pilgrimage look like to you like what you know what does it feel like well, a pilgrimage can be a lot of, I mean, it's really like a cabinet of wonders. I mean, a pilgrimage can be, can, can be as, as, as simple. I mean, in a way, like I'm never not on pilgrimage. Like it, there came this kind of tipping point that I kind of remember a number of years ago where I was like, I came back from a pilgrimage, but even like when I came back, it just started. And now like there's multiple levels of pilgrimage in my life. Like, you know, the traditional pilgrimage is that you, you know, undertake, a an ambulatory journey you walk to a sacred place or you are carried or you know there's any number of things that you can do like if you don't have a pair of legs you can be carried or wheeled or you know it's sort of like one way or another you're sort of moving from um where you are now into a place where there's where there's a, either an intensity of worship or like a particular kind of frequency of the divine is enshrined there celebrated there so on and you know there's there's the implication that there is some spiritual labor mm-hmm. you know there's a spiritual la- labor in you have to to like walk the miles or you have to, you know, be carried for that long or carry someone or something for that long, or you have to, um, undertake a particular kind of, you know, journey. Hmm. So there's that aspect of pilgrimage, which I really love because I, I kind of, you know, there's a way that I view this life sojourn, you know, as, as an, and the whole thing is a pilgrimage. It's like the pilgrimage of my own humanity where I'm, I'm pilgrimaging to the divine inside my humanity so that my humanity and my divinity, the, the humanity and divinity as a, a kind of, by the way, that's a polarity that I could say a lot about. It's a, it's a, it's a, it's a paradoxical and magical polarity. So this is not a polarity. That's like they're an opposition. Like it's not a hard opposites. It's a, it's more more magical than that, more profound, but just to say like, okay, so if I'm going to have a sense that there's an A and a B and the A is humanity and the B is divinity, then the the pilgrimage is like the movement of, you know, from my humanity to my divinity that allows me to like really gaze at the sacred mirror of my humanity inside that divinity. Mm -hmm. So, but like on a kind of practical level for me, you know, I go, you know, I go on pilgrimage to, to visit 
Black Madonna. I'm going on pilgrimage this summer to the sacred sites of Mary Magdalene in the south of France. Um, I've gone, I go on pilgrimage um, at least once annually to Paris to, to this particular place that happens to be a church. I call it a temple. Um, the person who brought me there, um, my very dear friend and teacher, Sianna Sherman, brought me there for the first time calls, calling it a temple. Um, and I go and sit and pray there once a year. And then I also um, go as often as I can to Avalon, which is um, in the physical place that is Glastonbury, which I'm um, initiated as a priestess of Avalon. So it's sacred ground for me. Um, but I also like, for example, over an entire year, I was on a, on a kind of divine mother pilgrimage that like, and then it was really weird because I thought, so, okay, I'm called to pilgrimage. I like decided to go on pilgrimage, but then like the actual going to a place didn't occur. It became this other inner journey. So I sort of set out to plan. And then I did plan to try and plan a pilgrimage. It just didn't want to happen. Something else wanted to happen. So then the pilgrimage became much more an interior movement. So that has happened as well. I also lead pilgrimage. I've led pilgrimage to India to um, very, very powerful sites in India and in Tamil Nadu. And I will do that again. I'm, you know, we're having, we had a pilgrimage last year where it was an interior pilgrimage. So we didn't actually go anywhere. It was called fill the vessel. We visited with Mary Magdalene and, and Bridget and with um, La Sidin. Uh, so we had three different priestesses kind of supporting people in a kind of pilgrimage to each of these deity forms, goddess forms. Yeah. So yeah. a lot of pil pilgrimage is like a really significant part of my life. Does it go hand in hand with your ritual practices? Like as a leader of ritual, as a leader of, of like as a priestess, like do you find that they overlap? Do they interweave? Do they... I mean, obviously, obviously they do. <laughs> um, but. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, a lot of times, you know, there are places that I go where once, once I get there, there's a particular, I mean, there's the whole pilgrimage is a form of ritual really, you know, and there's like, you know, people do it on their, they'll do entire pilgrimages on their knees. They'll do it. I've heard of people doing, you know, kind of pilgrimage walks where they're in full prostration, like throughout, like they just go prostration, stand up prostration. And then that's how they move along. But like, there's a lot of different ways to, to make a pilgrimage. Um, and for me, that's not separate from ritual practice. And it's also not separate, separate from like the, the communities that I call in the group work that I do, because I call community for exactly this. So we can go on pilgrimage together. So we can, cause to me, it's also like ridiculous fun. I mean, it's sort of, you know, that's like the Canterbury tales, right? It's like, oh, we're going to go from here to there, but we're this disparate group of people. And then on the way, everyone tells their story and, and it can, it's like really like restoring a lot of those sort of essential creative magic to life. Like, if you want to really get to know somebody, go on a journey with them. Truly, yeah. I mean, you know, within within the cultural story, that is very much part of it. You know, you go the road trip and you learn everything about everything yeah. about the person you're with. About the person, yeah. Um, and then when it's a spiritual, explicitly, so there's this thing that happens, you know, there's something different. We say we're going to do something. It might, every like, for me, it's not, I don't, it's not, I don't live in kind of dual reality in that way, like, you know, there's nothing that isn't spirit. There's nothing that isn't the divine. There's nothing that isn't the divine mother in my reality. And there are, I happen to be very captivated by the more penetrating forms and experiences of divinity. So that's just a preoccupation of mine, which is, a, I, which is to say, like, I really like to get high with the divine and I really like to experience that. Um, and I'm as committed to that as I am to, to the kind of um, dismantling of, of conditioning that you know, causes me harm to myself and causes me to, to do harm to others. Mm. 
Because mm. and you know, kind of Im, Im, implore, impel, compels me to to be complicit with systems of harm. So you know, all of that, all that's being taken apart. And at the same time, there's like I take a great joy in in kind of really the the more amazing and penetrating and astonishing, piercing kind of experiences of divinity as well. Yeah. Um. So yeah, if you get together. But people and you say, okay, well, we're going to go and we're going to intend to have piercing experience of divinity. So then you have this, it's very rich, right? Because on one hand, you've got just the richness of being together and the richness of seeing people in that light. And then you've got whatever ritual practices inevitably, if I'm involved, there's a lot of that. And then on top of that, you've got um, then the piercing experience that's the divinity that you then is sort of shared communally and collectively and amplified through the collective intention. Yeah. I mean, it's pretty, it's pretty sweet. <laughs> it's a pretty sweet, sweet ride. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Sound, sweet sweet ride. <laughs> um, and yeah, like, I mean, we had intended to talk about your work, you know, within the context of, of systemic injustice and like the dismantling thereof. I'd love to hear a little more of like, what does that work look for you, look like for you right now? Like, are you... Is it a personal practice? Is it something that you are currently kind of like putting out into the world as well? Yeah. Um, so, okay. So there's like, the, just in this, like to me, spiritual awakening and recognition of oppression and recognition of con conditioning at the systemic level, at the kind of level of like larger and larger groups of people and how that moves through time. Those are not separate things. Those are the same thing. So that's always a part of my, I mean, honestly, it's like sort of daily reflection and daily sort of awareness. And, and then there's a kind of, you know, my kind of daily, like, all right, well, how am I, how am I going to orient? How, you know, who am I centering? Who am I giving my money to? Like, who, what am I paying attention to? What kind of wisdom streams are, are salient? You know, and one of the things I, you know, was kind of saying some, somebody recently was like, I'm not sure how much I can learn about liberation from, I mean, I've studied with a lot of cisgendered heterosexual white men. And I think that's common to a lot of folks who've been in spiritual practice for long enough, because there was a certain point where like just the airwaves were so utterly dominated, you know, this is so utterly, and there was so much pedestalizing of those people. And even in, in very kind of sane communities, I would say, or communities where there was a sense of like, there's a very, very much a realness and a very, you know, still the, the supremacy culture aspect was, um, was not, not disacknowledged. Mm. So, you know, there's a way that like I'm in my offerings that like the backdrop is always, no matter what it is we're talking about, there's like, well, and this is a part of what we're talking about. It's not separate from what we're talking about. It's just a part of what we're talking about. And, you know, there's a choice to, to cherish everyone and then center folks who are, you know, bearing more marginalized, bearing marginalized identities. Um, there's also a project called Radical Darshan that I've um, been a co-creator of, which is really like where my, you know, I taught yoga for many years, which I always thought of like teaching yoga in the studios was to me like kind of like I would call gateway drug, but like people don't, people come to like yoga studios and like, you know, it's like, oh, it's spirituality, but I can, I can take, you know, I can kind of pick and choose and I can make it less spiritual. I can make it just physical, all these kind of nonsense I don't want to say nonsense ideas, like ways people choose to resource themselves in that space. Like, I don't yeah. want to diss what anybody's doing, you know, except a miss. <laughs> a lot of that stuff is really like harmful systemically because what never gets named in that is the level of um, 
exploitation and extraction, you know, by means of which that practice has now become available in this form. Yeah. Um, so, you know, this is something that I've seen and, you know, it kind of, it's grossed me out enough that like I've made like all that world very much smaller part of my life's work and kind of reinvested in the radical darshan project which you know has a lot of different facets but fundamentally is a 300 hour training in that centers decolonizing anti-racism and intersectional equity mm -hmm. um and so it's a it's a so that's one kind of thread of my like professional practice. I mean, to be honest, I'm also in a big transition period. I mean, aside from all the normal stuff, like, you know, in my offerings, there's, you know, I center like black folks, indigenous folks, people of color. I allow, you know, those are when I'm offering kind of scholarship or free places or, you know, and we always do like in Vessel of Worth, which is this um, kind of ritual practices community that I've called with Kimiko Fujimoto, one of my priestess colleagues and dear friends. Um, that's like, that's all, that's like a part of the kind of financial equation is that we, you know, there's either free places or very discountably, usually, but usually free places for, for, you know, black folks, sometimes for black women, sometimes, you know, there's all different kinds of things that we're doing. Um, so there's that part of my professional practice. And then there's like my growth edge. Like I have a few ideas. I'm, I'm recreating my life in the wake of having been focused in, you know, in the yoga world. I don't teach at the, you know, at Tri-Yoga at the big studio right now. I don't know if I will go back. I found it. I started to find that, you know, the kind of white supremacy culture, just supremacy culture in that world, like became, I think, a little too complex for my nervous system to bear with what I had to do in the last few years. Yeah. Um, I had some experiences that were challenging, really, and painful. Um, so, you know, I kind of needed to, to, to back off of that. And also, just frankly, I'm not a South Asian person. I am, um, you know, my, my family culture is from the Swana region, Southwest Asia, North Africa, in my case, Southwest Asia. So it's just a different, it's just a different I'm I'm now in a kind of orienting more towards the like indigenous practices of my ancestors. So on one hand, there's the Avalonian practices that I've been embedded in all these years. I think that's why I'm living in the UK. Mm -hmm. So there's that thread too. There's like, okay, I've just completely reoriented my entire professional life in that sense. And like what I'm focusing my energy on in a way that feels more, um, just really kind of feels more like, I don't want to say just, but it certainly feels more resonant with where my values are right now. Yeah. Yeah. And less extractive. Less extractive. Oh, yeah. As someone who has been a yoga teacher and is no longer a yoga teacher, you know, as a white woman with like white all the way back, like, yeah, yeah she's like, yeah, that is, it was, it wasn't, it was something that had to be let go of yeah. for, yeah, it's like that, that's not mine to hold on to. Yeah, I really, I really hear that. And, you know, it's not to say that that's the right choice for every person, every no. sort of non-South Asian person. They're obviously esoteric kind of pra heritage practices from every part of the world. Everybody's got it. You go back far enough, every single person on this planet has, has, you know, has an ancestral lineage of, you know, earth practices, ma magical practices, orientation to life that is of spirit in some capacity. And I just happen to be particularly interested in reclaiming mine in this phase and, and in, in kind of, um, in that, but there's also, 
trying to think of what else. I've got a few projects in mind. I'm not willing to sort of talk about them yet, but I'm not sure what, you know, I'm not sure which, because I'm not sure which one is, is the, is the one or what wants to be the loudest in my life. Yeah. As I restructure, as I reformulate, as I re, as I basically rebuild my life, you know? Yeah. And I think a lot of, a lot of people are at that point, you know, as we, somewhat emerge from the last couple of years right like there's we all we all went into 2020 a version of ourselves that is not coming out the other side <laughs> like yeah and that that restructuring feels very um very salient right now yeah and it's a restructuring where it's like whatever i do i mean i'll tell you this the commitment is that whatever i whatever form of structuring that emerges out of this if that's what we're going to call it or flow or whatever we're going to call it um, whatever that, emerges that it is not that it that it accords with my values and my understandings about about the nature of of oppression and about the way that it moves and you know that that sort of holds the long both the short term and the long term of what how I'm oriented with that amazing well I can't wait to see what unfolds what emerges um and I am conscious that we are coming towards coming towards an hour together um is there anything that you're like desperately want to like add to the conversation before we before we wrap up i mean you know just what do you do yeah i was just thinking like what what do folks who are listening to this want to want to hear or know that i can say except that you know i'm just standing in an utter blessing and and real enchant it like you know may may the the ears that hear my voice right now hear the enchantment of life inside the sound and and may may each person who hears this now have their heart resonate with that enchantment and and may everyone who hears this really turn really trust that that i would say especially with regard to the oppression piece like whatever it is that you're afraid to face it's so worth facing it whatever it is that you think, okay, well, I couldn't possibly imagine that, or I'm so, I can't even think about that or that, that, cause there's a shutdown place, right. When people talk about issues of marginalization and privilege, and there's always that place where it's like, okay, well, we're going to go this far. We're going to do these actions. I mean, this is what I see mostly with a lot of my, my, you know, colleagues and folks is that there's this invitation to come in, but people want to like, I mean, honestly, it's very famous. People want to like tick a box, but awakening, as we know, like awakening is not a, a box ticking exercise. So then if I were to share anything, it would be like just the the invitation to that, like to have the enchanted ears, the enchanted, enchanted awareness that allows you to hold a broader capacity of what you're really capable of, mm. both for yourself and what you think of yourself and also for what you're capable of offering to others. Really, the offering is so profound right now. There's so we have each of us have so much to give one another. Yeah. Over, actually, incredible. What a beautiful place to to wrap up. Um, beautiful offering for people. Um, do you want to let folks know on a practical, you know, practical level where they can where they can intersect with you, where they can you know, join your work and, and find more of your magic, literal and, and yeah. well, um, uh, in terms of that, I would say the thing that just immediately comes to mind is, is to come to invite folks to join, to join me and Kimiko for Revel and Worth, which is my, it's like a, 
it's an immersion in ritual practices. Mm. So this is like an entire week's, I mean, it's like a retreat basically, but it's, we're going to be on this land in France and we're simply going to be in ritual magic, like utterly, completely kind of turning down the volume on all the transactional dimensions of life and diving in to ritual practices and to, uh, you know, divine feminine attunement and to all of this for a whole week. Um, so that's like a big invitation. I'm could not possibly be more. I, I mean, I know now, cause I've started to get the, the kind of intuitions and understandings of what that week is for and what we're actually going to be doing. And people it's like, it's going to be such a profound vacation from like your worried self, like your, your contracted self, like we are going to dissolve into ritual action, but like ongoing. So it's not just like, oh, I go to this ritual and then I come back and then I, you know, I tuck it away and then I yeah. go back to life. Yeah. Or like I do my little thing, you know, no, no, no. This is like complete next level of, of really like living, you know, in a way like as the priestesses would have lived where it's this constant ongoing kind of, you know, like the metaphor would be the turning of the prayer wheel. It's like you turn the prayer wheel, but it keeps going after you've turned it. So it's this thing of like, okay, we're just going to like now be, it's really going to be fun. I mean, I just kind of can't, I'm already thinking about it a lot, but if you want to hang out with me or just connect with me, um, I have a mailing list that you can come on to at laylasadegi.com. I'm on the Instagram at laylasadegi. I'm yeah, available people, you know, you can like just kind of message me and say, hi, I like to visit with people and I'm constantly doing things and now more and more things in person. So yeah. Yeah. You've got a amazing collection of in-person things unfolding, which is really exciting. Yeah. Um, ah, well, thank you for your time. Thank you for, for spending this time and for sharing your wisdom and yeah, what a, what a beautiful offering. Thank you so much. Massive, massive thanks once more to Layla. It was such a pleasure to get to talk to her. You can find all of the details of her work and that retreat down in the show notes. Uh, if you like what you hear here and you want to support the show, then that would be amazing. Please feel free to like, review, rate, do all the podcast things, or just tell someone and share an episode with your friends. Recommendations and word of mouth are truly the best. If you want to work with me, then I have space for one-to-one -one embodiment guidance coming up in the autumn. Uh, there is a link down in the show notes for you to book your place. You can drop me an email about anything in this episode or any others, to be honest, at waywardbodies at protonmail.com. And you can come and join my mailing list, which is my other favorite way to communicate uh, over at eliebauerjohnston.substack.com. And last but not least, you can find more of my work over on my website, which is anotherpractice.com. All of those links are down in the show notes. And this podcast is edited by the radiant Jolie Kelly of Spreading Fire Studios with eternal thanks and praises. And I think that's everything for today's episode. Thank you so much for joining me. And until next time, big love.